please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. As we prepare to hear God speak to us by His Spirit through His Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we know that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, be pleased to feed your people, satisfy our hunger, satisfy our thirst, Father. We need the bread that, that gives life, and we need the, the living water that Jesus provides. And so, Father, be pleased now to meet with your gathered people. Indeed, as we sang, uh, chase the dark night of sin away and bring us into your light, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope by the end of six weeks we all know Philippians 4, 1 through 9 a bit better. Uh, if nothing, just by sheer repetition, um, as we are in week number two of Peace Under Pressure, join with me as I read Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Some of you out here may be familiar with the 1960s and 1970s TV series or the 1990s to today's, uh, to the present day, uh, the film series, uh, Mission Impossible. It always began with these words, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to. It's always an interesting mission, uh, kind of the cold, I, I grew up with the Cold War days of that. Um, what is it, the um, Impossible Mission um, Team, uh, the Impossible Mission Force. Um, mission Impossible, but usually they always succeeded. Uh, that was the whole point. Now when it comes to the missions God gives us in his word, now he gives missions to the church, he gives a mission to his people. Uh, we don't get a choice. We don't get a choice. Uh, now, but we may wonder, 
if we've got the desire or the ability to get that impossible mission done. Here in Philippians 4, in particular verses 4 through 7, are several exhortations. Now, these four verses may be the most memorized, the most loved uh, and meditated upon verses in this letter, in, in the Bible. As I mentioned last week, I got a Bible, I think it was from my sister, and there it is at the top, 4, colon, 4 through 7. Now, you would think that they would provide encouragement, right? But sometimes after reading them, it's not encouragement that comes out, it's, it's discouragement. Because this being called to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, does that, when you hear it, seem impossible? Rejoice in the Lord. Again, rejoice. Is your reaction one of no way? Can't do it. Impossible. Does being told, do not be anxious about anything, often seem to have the exact opposite Effect. In other words, does being told not to be anxious raise your anxiety? Have you ever been comforted to know that peace is available only to become distressed when you can't seem to find it? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I've got some good news for you. I've got some good news for all of us because for six weeks, Started last week. For six weeks, we're unpacking and exploring both the content and the context of these four well-known and well-loved verses in peace under pressure. You see, living in a sinful and fallen world, living between the already and the not yet means living with all kinds of pressure, forces both foreign and domestic. In other words, threats that are coming from the outside as well as threats rising up from the inside. But, as we will hopefully see from their passage, the God of peace gives the peace of God to his people in the midst of all kinds of pressure. Remember, Paul is writing to this church that he established. You can go back to Acts chapter 16. It's his first missionary journey into Europe. He gets into Europe and his first convert is, is a businesswoman, Lydia. We saw in our study of Acts three surprising conversions. Uh, again, Lydia, the businesswoman, the unnamed slave girl, and, and the Philippian jailer, the civil servant. All unlikely conversions and yet unable to withstand the work of God changing their lives. And you also may remember from that narrative account that Luke writes is as a result of what Paul and his missionary band were doing, they were thrown in jail. And what do we do? We find Paul and Silas in jail praying and singing hymns to God, rejoicing in the midst of being in jail. We believe Paul writes this letter, most likely from his imprisonment in Rome around 61 to 62 AD. He starts off with greetings, and then there's thanksgiving and prayer. He then speaks of the truth of the gospel, and he, and he relates the gospel to himself, and then he relates the gospel to the Philippians. 
And then he moves on in chapter three to speak about truth against error, that there's danger from the outside and danger from the inside, uh, danger from legalism and license, outside and inside threats. And here in chapter four, we're spending our time looking at the exhortations. And then he'll follow that with thanksgivings before he gives his final greetings. Well, it's, ver- it's worth repeating over and over again. What is the theme of this letter? If you had to, if you had to kind of put this letter with a, a one-sentence summary, what would it be? Well, after seeing how many times forms of the word joy are in um, Philippians and how many times the gospel is mentioned. In fact, there's eight references or nine references to the gospel, the most concentrated part of all of Scripture. A good way to see the theme is joy in the gospel because of the gospel. Last week, we looked at the first three verses, kind of the, the beginning context in together for the gospel. And we saw that being together and staying together for the gospel involves, among other things, standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord, and helping one another in the Lord. Paul here is entreating the members of the Philippian church to stand united in the Lord for the sake of the gospel. We also saw that it's hard to obey. It's hard to obey this standing firm, agreeing, and helping one another. It's hard to obey because it involves more than say strong hands and feet. It involves, in the first place, getting a new heart and then maintaining a soft heart. And so Paul directs the attention of the church to Jesus. And as we heard in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, Paul directs his readers, his hearers to Jesus and his humble manner of life and what he did in obedience to his father. Today, we're moving into that exhortation, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, but it's not new. Look back to verse chapter three. Chapter three opens up with these words. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in, this, in the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Well, in a few verses later, he's going to say the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not new. It's a repeat. But he, he doesn't just say it here. Uh, he says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. It's the shortest verse. Rejoice always. It competes with Jesus wept as the shortest verse. Rejoice always. Always. It's not new, it's not unique, but look what's happening in verse 4. It's being emphasized, it's important. Paul is using the highlighter, he's using the bold type, he's drawing attention. If there was an emoji, there would probably be an emoji of some kind. Rejoice. In the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And even the translators of, for instance, the English Standard Version capitalize rejoice. It's very rare that a word um, like that would be capitalized. But it's another way of drawing attention. Rejoice in the Lord always. I looked at every translation I could find. 
and they were almost all exactly identical. The King James says all way instead of always, but everything else was the same. What does that tell us? It tells us it's not hard to translate, right? It's not hard to translate. I would have loved to have this verse on one of my exams. It's not hard to translate, but I think it's hard to believe that it can be done. I don't know what you guys, well, I do know. I do know some of what difficulties you're facing, some trials. It may be right now for you really hard, impossible to rejoice, or so it may seem. It's not hard to translate, but it may be hard for you to believe right here, right now. In fact, it might be the last thing you think you can do. Rejoice in the Lord. Are you kidding me? You don't know what I'm facing. Well, I want to begin with a bluff. A B-L-U-F. Does anybody know what a bluff is? Bottom line up front. You see, the answer to the question posed in the title, mission impossible question mark, is no. Rejoicing always is not mission impossible. It's not only a mission that is possible, it's a mission that's practical and a mission that's a priority. And so we're going to unpack and explore this verse by asking uh, three common questions, the what, the how, and the why. And in doing so, we're going to be able to see that rejoicing always, first of all, is possible. Second, is practical. And third, is a priority. What? Rejoicing always is possible. Now, why is that? It's possible because it's not determined by the circumstances around you. I mean, I think all of us know that. We read scripture and we see that, that the circumstances are not determinative. Where is Paul, after all, writing this? He's in prison, house arrest, chained probably to a Roman soldier in in, prison. Rome, and yet over and over again, he's, he's speaking of joy, right? He, he's praying with joy, right? Because of their partnership in the gospel, right? Verse, chapter one, verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day to now. I mean, Paul's starting off with joy. He, he says that what is happening to him is actually advancing the gospel. Later in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul would say this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I think it's fair to translate content as to be at peace or, or be joyful. There's a contentment. He's learned to be contented. He's learned to be joyful no matter what the circumstances. And speaking of circumstances, did you hear the end of Habakkuk's prayer, our Old Testament reading? 
all of the things that are lacking. Fruit, trees that are barren, cattle uh, stalls that are empty, fields that have no produce. What does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Habakkuk saying, not just I will rejoice, but he's saying I will take joy. It's, it's a choice. And he's deliberately saying it over and over again. He's rejoicing where? In the Lord. He's taking joy in who? In the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength, he said. So we could give evidence after evidence after evidence that that rejoicing is always possible because it's not determined by outward circumstances. But if you're like me, how much time do you spend wishing that things were different? What, you know, at worst you're complaining and you might be bitter, but maybe at best you're just wishing it would be different. You can't rejoice. But it is possible to rejoice because it's determined not by the circumstances around you, but by who is at work in you. Did you hear that? It's not determined, kids, by what's going on around you, but it's determined by who is at work in you. And what does Paul say about that? Look back to chapter 1, verse 6. He speaks of he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is expressing not only his joy, but his confidence that it is God who has begun a good work, and it is God who will finish that good work. And later in chapter 2, he speaks of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And wouldn't his good pleasure be that his people rejoice, that his people take joy I mean, we could speak a long time about how happiness and joy are different, right? That, that joy, happiness sometimes is, is on the surface, but joy is deep and content, contentment. But just, just note that Paul is saying when he says rejoice in the Lord always around him in that letter. It's just the affirmation to the people that God is at work in them. That they, yes, are to work it out, but God has worked it in. It's a good word for us all. Notice that we rejoice not in our circumstances, but we rejoice in our Savior. You see, rejoicing is exclusive It's in the Lord. There's a location for that rejoicing. You know, earlier, stand firm, thus in the Lord. Later, agree in the Lord. And then I would add, you know, help these women, help one another in the Lord. But here directly again, rejoice in the Lord. You see, rejoicing is 
exclusive. It's in the Lord. But it's not elusive. It's available. Because Paul is reinforcing over and over again in this letter and his other letters the benefit and the blessing of being in Christ, united by faith in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. So what do you and I have in the Lord? Forgiveness of sin. New life. A guaranteed future. Peace. Go back and read Psalm 103 about the benefits. Read the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which talks about the benefits that we receive at death and the benefits we receive at the resurrection. There's a lot of good reasons to rejoice in the Lord because in the Lord, you and I have a lot of benefits. And Paul wants to draw our attention to that. So if you're like me and sometimes can't tell up from down and the circumstances are spinning around you, go to Psalm 103 and forget not all his benefits. Rejoicing is exclusive. It's in the Lord, but it's not elusive. It can be found. So it's not only a mission that is possible. It's a mission that is practical. Now, what do we mean? Well, when you are rejoicing always, um, a few things are taking place. Uh, Again, notice how he says, rejoice in the Lord always, continually, ongoing. It's not a start and a stop. It's continual. Well, here's why it's practical. First of all, it takes your eyes off of your suffering. In particular, it takes your eyes off of your suffering of you being sinned against. If you're rejoicing always, you don't have as much bandwidth, you don't have as much margin to spend time thinking about your suffering, thinking about being sinned against. You see, rejoicing in the Lord always puts your circumstances in perspective. I remember a a few years ago, Mark Carey, who many of you all know, um, is serving uh, with uh, Surge in the Czech Republic. We were meeting for our monthly uh, time of prayer and lunch, and Mark was just sharing some stuff, and he said, you know, I've learned to put, put my circumstances in the background and God in the foreground. Because oftentimes our circumstances are in the foreground and God is way back in the background. But Mark just said it really started helping him when he sort of asked himself, what's in the foreground? What's in the background? The way I look at it is, you know, is the Lord the windshield through whom I am seeing the world? You got to look through your windshield. Here, if you're rejoicing, always Your eyes are off, or at least they're less, they're not as on your circumstances as much. And second, not only does rejoicing always take your eyes off of your circumstances, it takes your eyes off of yourself. See, the biggest problem you and I have is not out there, it's in here. And I'm still learning that. That my biggest obstacle is not somebody's sin against me that's coming to me from the outside. It's my own sinful heart. 
That's the big obstacle. And yet, have you noticed it's hard to be simultaneously thankful and sinful? Now, of course, even in our best moments of thanking the Lord and, and being thankful, of course, sin is there present to some degree. But you know, it's, it's harder to sin if you're thanking God for something. But it's also harder to sin if you're rejoicing, right? Think about it. If you're rejoicing always, it's going to be harder to sin. It's hard to be simultaneously thankful and sinful. It's hard to be simultaneously joyful and sinful. I think Paul is going to want his reader to think about his own life. Uh, Look with me at chapter 3. This is Paul looking at himself, beginning in the middle of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, earlier, Paul, it was all about him. What he had done and what he was doing for God, he was blinded to what God had done through the person and work of Jesus until he met Jesus. The gospel took Paul's eyes off of himself and put it on the Lord. And Paul is an example over and over again here of rejoicing in the Lord. And when Paul is rejoicing in the Lord, the thought of his arrogance and pride of bragging what he had done just gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. You see, if your eyes aren't looking outward or inward, where are they looking? Well, our eyes are on Jesus, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Our eyes aren't on the circumstances. Our eyes certainly aren't to be on ourselves. They're rather to be on Jesus as we run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. There's a hymn in Hymns Modern and Ancient, hymn number 25. We sang it about a year ago called Come Look to Jesus. I just want to read the first verse. Come all souls by sin afflicted, come to Christ where grace abounds. By the broken law convicted, through the cross behold the crowned. Look to Jesus, 
Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. You know, Jesus provides the example, right? Look to Jesus. But Paul is going to set himself up as an example as well. Come follow me as I follow Christ, he would say elsewhere. He wants us to look at his manner of life. But I want you to know that we also can serve as examples. Because notice the southern translation of verse 4. Y'all rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say y'all rejoice. You all, the church, everyone together. The call is plural. The response is plural. You know who has the most influence in my life? And I think it would be true for many of you also. Is it the well-known person who's got a public platform? Is it the person that's written the books or given the talks at conferences? Or maybe is it the person who you know who's greatly suffering health-wise, financial-wise, relationship-wise, greatly suffering, you never hear them complain. You never hear them murmur. All you do is you see them quietly rejoice in the Lord. Some of you sitting out here are those kind of people for me, and thank you. Thank you for your example of rejoicing in the Lord always. Despite the circumstances, rejoicing because it's not determined by the circumstances around you, but it's determined by who is at work in you. May we be a church full of people in whom others can look at us and see us rejoicing in the Lord always. So we briefly considered the what, rejoicing always is possible. We, we've looked briefly at the how. Rejoicing always is practical. It is harder to sin if you're rejoicing. Now let's consider the why. Uh, kind of a motive. Um, rejoicing is, is always a priority. Now once again, notice the repeated emphasis. Rejoice, rejoice. It's even a repeat of chapter 3, verse 1. Paul knows that we are made to rejoice. To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? To be human is to rejoice, right? But in what are we rejoicing? In whom are we rejoicing? You see, we are made, we are created to, to make something the object of our rejoicing, something the focal point of our joy. It's not in the created things. It's in the creator. You see, 
Rejoicing always is a priority because it's our fundamental purpose, right? I mean, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, question and answer one, really does get it right. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for which man was created? What is man's primary and most significant calling? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to enjoy God. Um, One noted Christian theologian pastor kind of said, you know, maybe the Westminster divines who were putting together the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism, maybe they wanted to say this, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Glorifying God by enjoying him, glorifying God by rejoicing in him, glorifying God by being full of joy because of who he is. That same theologian went on to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do you find it hard to rejoice because something else is satisfying you? Something other than Jesus and the good news of salvation by grace through faith? Is there something else than being in a restored and right relationship with the living and true God that's captured your heart? Our fundamental purpose to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to to rejoice always in him Well, let's wrap up by thinking a few moments about a few things here. First, the Trinity and joy. Think about God the Father's joy. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. My friends, is that the God you know? The God who will rejoice over you with gladness? The gospel, of course, is scandalous, right? How on earth could God rejoice over me? But not only... Do we read of God the Father's joy? Of course, we read of God the Son's joy. We see that in Hebrews 12, verse 2. We're running the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Son's joy. How about the Spirit's joy? Most commentators have seen in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, The fruit of the Spirit. Love. You saw that in verses 1 through 3. Now joy in verse 4. Love, joy. You're going to see peace. I mean, Paul basically doesn't have to say it, but he's saying it. And the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. 
He writes to the Roman church, the kingdom of God is a matter, among other things, of what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. He writes the church in Thessalonica, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, rejoice always in the Lord. We're rejoicing. God the Father is rejoicing over us. The Son had us in mind. We are the joy that is set before Him. And the Spirit, the Spirit in us produces, among other things, joy. Rejoice always. I thought not only of the Trinity and joy, but also just the gospel and joy. Most of you have heard what we say every now and then. Cheer up. Cheer up. You've heard it like this. The Bible is summed up in two sentences. First, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. And second, cheer up. God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. Let's substitute another word. The Bible is summed up in two sentences. First, rejoice. You are a lot worse than you think you are. And the second, rejoice. God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. Isn't that amazing? We can rejoice by seeing the depth of our sin and we can rejoice by seeing the grace and kindness of our Savior. One writer said this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me and yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. My friends, that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and lives of his people. So joy, strength for today in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sin, sin being sinned against and sinning against others Strength for today. Paul goes on to write in chapter 4 these words. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can rejoice in the Lord, through the very same Lord who strengthens me. How's that for the, the, the object and the power being together? Nehemiah writes this, and do not be grieved, for the Lord your God is your strength. The joy of the Lord Your God is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's end thinking again about that passage from Habakkuk. There's a hymn in our Trinity hymnal, hymn number 621, called Sometimes a Light Surprises. It's written by William Cooper, 
an English hymn writer who battled depression, anxiety, tried to take his own life a number of times. John Newton, of all people, ministered to him. Cooper found it hard to rejoice. And in the hymn, sometimes a light surprises. He ends up with this final verse. Though vine nor fig tree neither their wonted fruit should bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks or herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. My friends, if you're like me right now, struggling, having a hard time to rejoice, confide in the Lord, come close to him in prayer, in fellowship. You know, one of the great ways we can help one another is to share our rejoicing in the Lord with others. Tell one another, what what is the Lord doing in your life? How is he convicting you of sin? How is he strengthening you in the good news of forgiveness in Christ? Share that with somebody. For a pastor or an elder or anybody else, a great encouragement is to see others growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, rejoicing in the midst of hard and difficult times because our eyes are not on our circumstances. They're not on ourselves. They're upward and outward on the Lord. May we as a church, may we as individuals, as families, as friends, come to realize that rejoicing is not Rejoicing always is not mission impossible. It's mission possible. It's mission available. It's mission that we can do together. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the word that reminds us that our hope and our peace and our contentment, our joy is not found in the created thing. It is found in you, our creator. Father, help us to understand that our rejoicing is not dependent upon our circumstances, it's not even dependent upon ourselves. It's when we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Oh, Father, be pleased to help all of us rejoice in the Lord always. And again, rejoice. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.